John Bart one time quipped, reality is a nice place to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. I laughed and still laugh whenever I hear this because uh, I feel strongly some of what he intends by that. I mean, on one hand, we can't help but live in reality. We are embodied creatures and we find ourselves living on what's been called this small blue dot in a vast cosmos and universe. And yet we know something of the beauty of this place, but also the brokenness of this place and, and also the pain that it comes with living in a very fallen and broken world. Let me ask you a question. How do you hope in the midst of a sometimes painful reality? How do you find the strength to keep believing and keep moving forward in this reality that we live? And if we're honest, sometimes we would long to escape, and sometimes we do seek to escape, whether it's through substance or through diversion or whatever. How do you hope? How do you deal with a sometimes painful reality? Let's make no mistake about it, my friends. Sometimes pain drives people far from God. And other times, pain is actually something that brings people near to God. And we're going to look at a passage today in the Gospel of Luke in which a man was experiencing unbelievable pain in his life. You see, his, his son, his only child, was going through some things that we can, we can hardly even put words to. And in his desperation, he found Jesus. And we're going to find this man face to face with Jesus of Nazareth. And we're going to learn something about what it means to trust in Jesus, even in the midst of unanswered questions, even in the midst of piercing doubts, even in the midst of a struggling faith to believe that something can be different than the way that it is right now. And so whether you find yourself fully convinced of the gospel of Jesus or whether you are struggling to believe or just simply exploring, this is a great place for us to dive in and to understand more of who Jesus is for us. We're going to learn that faith and doubt can sometimes coexist in the same moment. Belief and unbelief. Questions in the midst of, of longing to be answered. And so we're going to call our study today, I Believe, Help My Unbelief. And as I mentioned a while ago, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. But we're also going to just dive into the Gospel of Mark a little bit and some of Matthew's. We seek to bring in how they tell this same story about Jesus and his glory in this moment. And so as we get ready to, to dive into this, let's just pause for a moment and ask the Lord to incline our hearts to understand the things that are set before us this day. So let's pray together. Lord, we find ourselves together in this moment over this medium of the internet, applications, of, of screens, and yet we acknowledge that your spirit is not limited by this. Even though we long to be in person with one another, this is an opportunity nevertheless for us to open the gospel and to understand more of who Jesus is, to not come to be entertained or to have our ears tickled, but to seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can know what it means to follow him in this sometimes painful reality that we find ourselves in. So would you meet us here during this moment as we open up this ancient account of the life of Jesus and be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, my friends, the context of what is going to unfold before us is Jesus and his disciples coming down from a mountain. And if you were with us last week, you remember we looked at what was called the transfiguration of Jesus, in which the veil of his humanity was in a sense, set aside, and his glory was revealed. Jesus became radiant. He was glorified in the midst of his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And so now they're coming down from this mountaintop experience, what you might call the mountaintop experience of all mountaintop experiences, to come back to face a rather difficult reality. And so this is how Luke begins this section. He tells us in verse 37, on the next day, When they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And Jesus is often pulling away from the crowds to spend time in prayer with his father. And and now they're coming down the mountain. And of course, the crowds are there to meet them. And we're told this from Mark in, in his gospel account. When they came to the disciples, that is the other nine disciples that didn't go with Jesus and Peter, James, and John up that mountain, when they came to the other disciples, they saw the scribes arguing with them. And so he, that is Jesus, asked them, his other disciples, what are you arguing about with them? So get the picture. Jesus and his disciples are coming down the mountain. With He's coming with his closest friends. He, he encounters his other disciples who are in an argument, a fierce debate with the scribes, the experts of the law. So that's what's going on. That's what that's what they're met with. And as Jesus asks this question about what they're arguing about, a, a cry comes out from the crowd. We're told this in verse 38. Behold, look, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And when we look at something like this, uh, there's no doubt people who are very skeptical of what's going on here. Modern day people will look at a text like this and just simply write it off as primitive people who really didn't know about science and the things that we know here and what we would now call maybe an epileptic seizure, they attributed it to spirits, to demons, and and we know better than that. Well, Luke, the physician, is writing to us this account, and this is what this man tells us, and we're going to find out just a little bit more that it's not just an epileptic seizure. It is something much more hideous and insidious going on, but this is what's going on. This is the reality that presents itself to Jesus and his disciples as they come back down this mountain and encounter this crowd. A man cries out to Jesus in desperation, begging him to come look at his son. But before we leave this little section right here, notice these words that he uses to describe what's going on with his son. He says that this spirit shatters him. Talk about a painful reality. This experience of preternatural evil that this man's son is experiencing shatters him. It it leaves him broken. It, It leaves him in pieces. And I find that that phrase really, a, a, I don't want to say a beautiful description, that's actually the wrong way of putting it, but an insightful description to talk about, in general, our experience in this world. It shatters us. We find ourselves not whole. We find ourselves experiencing evil, maybe at the hands of other people, maybe even supernatural evil, and it shatters us. This is not the reality that we want to live in. 
This man tells Jesus, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. This is interesting. This is part of what's going on when Jesus meets his disciples coming down the mountain. There's this great crowd assembled and his his disciples were trying to help this man and his young son. And they're trying to cast out whatever spirit this is, whatever demonic influence is oppressing him, shattering him. And they couldn't do it. Maybe this is why the scribes of the law are arguing with them, telling them this is proof that their following of Jesus is for nothing. Whatever the case is going on here, something terrible is happening, and this man is desperate. Tim Keller in his book, The King's Cross, and commenting on this passage, said this, Evil is present, and everyone is confused. It stymies everyone around him, his father, the disciples, and the teachers of the law. There's this experience of evil that this man is is facing, and it is stymieing everyone. And so Jesus says something in the wake of this, which is maybe a bit unsettling. Verse 41, Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear you? Bring your son here. We look at this and We're like, what is going on here? Jesus just had this mountaintop experience, and now he's encountering this situation. And he uses this phrase, oh, faithless and twisted generation. I think if we were rooted in the Hebrew scriptures, in in the story of Jesus' people, in the history of his people, we would understand this phrase as describing that generation that came out of Egypt through Moses and experienced the the signs and wonders of God and his miraculous liberation of them. And yet their hearts were hardened. They were dull and they were were slow to believe the things that God said. And they were described as as a faithless and, and twisted generation. And so Jesus, looking at this crowd and looking at this moment, no doubt is frustrated. And we don't like to hear that from Jesus because Jesus is immensely patient and he is. But something is going on here. We're going to see it in just a moment of of what makes Jesus say this. But nevertheless, he describes this present generation, and he describes them as faithless, as twisted. And he's wondering how long he will bear with them. But he tells this man, bring your son here. Verse 42, when he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. So picture this, this man going and grabbing his son and bringing him to Jesus. And as he brings him to Jesus in his immediate presence, this spirit, what, what Luke describes as a demonic influence, a demon, throws him to the ground and convulses him. And as this is happening, the gospel writer Mark actually gives us a little bit more of what's going on here. He tells us in Mark chapter 9, these words, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. So imagine this scene. There's crowds around. This man brings his son to Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, this influence throws this boy to the ground. It's continuing to shatter him. And Jesus asks in this moment, how long has this been happening? And the father responds, from childhood. 
And this is why we know this is something else besides an epileptic seizure, because this force is trying to destroy him by casting him into fire and into water. Imagine the lived experience of this father. This is a reality that he would not ever want to live in a thousand lifetimes, but this is his experience. And he finds himself face to face with Jesus, whom he has begged to take a look at his son. And so Jesus is looking at him and he's hearing this man speak about his lived experience. And this is what the man says to Jesus. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What a prayer of desperation, bringing his broken, shattered son to Jesus and saying, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What a cry of desperation. This is how Jesus responds. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. I wonder if Jesus had a wry smile on his face when he said this. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus certainly believes. He knows all things are possible. And here's this man before him asking if Jesus can do anything and have compassion on them. And Jesus says, look, all things are possible for the one who believes. And this is what the man says next. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love this prayer, this cry of desperation. Here he is before Jesus. And he heard Jesus say, all things are possible for the one who believes. This man is desperate for the attention of Jesus, for Jesus to do something. And he simply cries out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. This is really amazing. Here in this man is a mixture of belief and unbelief. He places confidence in Jesus, and yet he is wavering. He's, he's experienced such shattering in his life and in his son's life that he's just simply desperate. I believe. Help my unbelief. I can't tell you, my friends, how many times this prayer has come in useful in my own life. And I've talked to so many of you who have said the exact same thing. This is a, a continual prayer of so many people. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe I want to believe more. I believe, but I'm struggling. I'm, I'm a mixture. Help me. Luke tells us this in verse 42. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. <laughs> okay, what, Luke? What just happened? He said, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy. He gave him back to his father. This is almost understated, Luke. Surely you can describe what happened here in, in more magnificent terms. Luke tells us this is what happened. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. He healed the boy and gave him back to his father. This is a bit understated. And I think maybe Luke is being intentional. What the disciples were laboring to do what the crowds were hoping to see happen at the hands of Jesus. Jesus simply does by rebuking this malevolent, evil spirit. And it says that he healed this boy, this boy who was shattered. He healed him and gave him back to his father. 
what an amazing moment this must have been. What would it have been like to, to experience this in the ministry of Jesus? What did it mean for this man to have his son back? Well, Luke continues and he tells us, and they were astonished at. And before we look and see what they were astonished at, how much you expect Luke to describe this moment? The crowds are all around. They see what has just happened. This boy who was shattered is, is now made whole. And so you might expect Luke to say they were astonished at Jesus or at this miracle that Jesus performed. But look how Luke describes this. They were astonished at the majesty of God. What an interesting choice of words that Luke uses to describe what was going on here in those crowds and with this man. Luke has just told us about the transfigured glory of Jesus that some of his disciples were able to see, how the glory of God was shown in the face of Jesus. And now in the midst of this miracle, there's the majesty of God on full display. Luke wants us to be asking the question, who is this man? Who is this man in whom the majesty of God himself is displayed? Man, what would it have been like to, to just indwell this moment? What would be our thoughts of Jesus? What would we be hoping he would do next? We're told in the second part of verse 33, that while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, <laughs> getting ahead of myself here, while this crowd was marveling at everything Jesus was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Jesus is about to tell them something that he wants them to know. He's gathering his disciples around him in the midst of this crowd that's going crazy with excitement and marveling at the majesty of God. He brings them together and says, let these words sink into your ears. Now, before we see what Jesus said here, what do you think is going to happen when someone tells you, listen carefully to what I'm about to say, or whether someone gets you before them and says, let these words sink into your ears. What comes next is something very important that they don't want you to miss. That's what's going on here. The crowds are marveling at everything Jesus was doing. And so Jesus said this to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. What is Jesus doing here? Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus, why are you being down? <laughs> We're just rejoicing in the majesty of God on display in and through you. Why are you talking like this? You see, my friends, Jesus is continuing to refine their understanding of who he is. And if you've been with us at Mercy Hill Church, you know that when Jesus uses this phrase, the Son of Man, he's using a favorite designation of himself to describe himself. And it has echoes of Daniel chapter 7. And you know this, if you've been with us, we're meant to hear the resonance of this passage every time. This was a vision that Daniel was given. And he said, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days, that is to God himself, and was presented before him. So Daniel is seeing a human being, what he describes as the Son of Man, coming before God, being presented to him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Whenever we hear Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, we're meant to have this promise in the background. But here's the question that ought to be coming to our mind. How can this royal Son of Man, this King of Kings, be delivered over to the authorities? Why is Jesus trying to get them to understand something about who he is by putting this picture of of a king being given the inheritance of this world, and yet this king being handed over to suffer. What are they meant to see in this? Well, Luke tells us in verse 45, they did not understand this saying. Jesus says, let this sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed and handed over to the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And then Matthew adds, they were greatly distressed. (laughs) Jesus just said, the son of man, in whom this majesty of God is thick upon him, this son of man, the king of kings, is about to be handed over, delivered into the hands of men. This is not what the disciples want to hear at this moment. We're told that they didn't understand. It was concealed from them, so they may not perceive it. Who's doing the concealing here? Well, I think on one hand, we could say it wasn't Jesus, because Jesus is saying, let this sink into your ears. Some people might say, well, God is the one keeping it from them. But I want to suggest, my friends, I may be wrong on this, but I think it's their own refusal to come to grips with the true identity of Jesus, that part of what it means for him to be the king of kings is to undergo suffering. They don't want to hear that because the implications of it for their own lives. If Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God, and remember in their terminology, that meant the revolution of God that was coming. If Jesus is going to be handed over, then his right-hand men are going to be handed over as well, and they don't want to hear that. And so I think it was their own unbelief or the refusal to embrace this part of Jesus that kept them from perceiving it. They're basically doing what you and I oftentimes do when we read the scriptures and we come across something that we don't like or that makes us uncomfortable. We just kind of move on beyond that and continue with our our preconceived notions of what we want to be true. And I think that's maybe what's going on here. I could be wrong about this, but they were greatly distressed that Jesus in this moment And the majesty of God is all on display. It's talking about his own upcoming death. Peter would later understand this. And after the crucifixion of Jesus and and after his resurrection, he would go on to write early followers of Jesus with these words. Christ also suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see, Peter didn't understand in the moment that this miracle took place that part of what Jesus had to do to change reality for us was not just simply something that could be uh, written off as a magic trick, 
But he had to do something much deeper than that. He had to identify with our humanity such that not only does he come to taste our sorrow, but he comes to taste our death and alienation from God. So that when Jesus was handed over and was brutally beaten and mercilessly crucified, that in the mystery of that moment, God was causing the sins of the world to dwell upon him. And in that mystery, God brings about the righteousness of Jesus and reconciliation for you and me. So as we look at this passage and just think about this crazy event that happened, what is going on here? Why does Luke record this question that Jesus asks, or this man asks, the statement of Jesus? Why is all of this here, this, this picture of what's going on? Well, my friends, I think we need to understand that Jesus can't be understood just in a kind of a miracle here and a miracle there, but in the fuller mission of his life, which was to redeem this world from the brokenness of of sin and its curse, this reality that that maybe we would like to visit but not dwell in very long. Uh, He's come to undo the curse as far as it is found, and nothing, not even the faithful the faithlessness of this world or the twistedness of this generation or even our generation can deter him from moving towards it with redemptive purposes and achieve what he will describe as the renewal of all things. And so maybe we could summarize it like this, my friends. Jesus' response to the pain and suffering and unbelief of this world is to move towards it with his healing. Therefore, we hope in Jesus, who is himself, the foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. We believe in Jesus. We go all in with Jesus, who is the foretaste of the coming kingdom of God. That's what they experienced in this moment. So my friends, as we unpack this just a little bit more, there there are three massive implications that I think we need to understand in the wake of this time together, looking at this miracle of Jesus. First of all, Jesus does not ask for perfect faith, but the presence of true faith. Jesus here tells this man that all things are possible for the one who believes. And the man simply responds by saying, I believe, help my unbelief. This man was acutely aware of how imperfect his faith was. It was a desperate faith. It was there. It was true. But it wasn't massive at this moment. It's, it's hanging by a thread. And yet, nevertheless, it drove him to Jesus. And Jesus displayed the glory of God for him. My friends, I think many people, including Christians, have a wrong notion of what faith is. Sometimes people think faith is believing what you know ain't true. You will not find a shred of evidence of that definition of faith anywhere in the scriptures. Some people think that faith cannot coexist with doubt or with questions or with unanswered questions, and nothing could be further from the truth. Faith is essentially trust. It is trusting in light of the evidence, and this man is entrusting himself to Jesus. And with an imperfect faith, but nevertheless, true faith comes to Jesus and says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. That is a bold statement of true faith, even if it's not as strong as this man wants it to be. 
It's interesting. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that when Jesus had communicated what was going to happen with his disciples, they didn't ask him about that, but they did have a question on their mind. And we're told by this by the Gospel writer Matthew. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? Speaking of this unclean spirit, this demon. And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The gospel writer Mark tells us, he also said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Ah, I think here we see what was going on all along. Jesus tells his disciples that if they had the faith as small as a mustard seed, and and at that time, the mustard seed was the smallest seed in, in Israel. He takes something so small. He says, look, if you have this much faith, you would be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move for you. But Jesus also said, look, the reason why you couldn't do anything in this moment was because you didn't pray about it. And I think we're meant to understand here that the little faith that the disciples had was not faith in the power of God, but it was a misplaced faith in themselves. They were trying to cast out this malevolent spirit, this demon, but they didn't even stop to pray to God about it. They were trusting in themselves. That's what self-confidence means, faith in one's self. And so, my friends, Jesus doesn't ask for perfect faith, but he does ask us to trust him. And trusting him is true faith. And so that's the first point of application. Jesus does not ask for perfect faith, but for the presence of true faith. And, And here's the second point. God's heart is to move toward us in the mess of our lives. We have to understand the implication of this miracle of Jesus, to understand God's purposes for this world. This man was full of desperation, as we've said, and it was mixed with doubt. He didn't have his life altogether. And in many ways, it was a complete mess. No doubt there were some, probably the religious leaders of his day, were blaming him for the condition of his son. But he nevertheless comes in true faith to Jesus and casts himself before Jesus. And Jesus doesn't write him off. He doesn't say, get away from me. He says, bring your son to me. Bring the issue that is shattering your life to me. Bring the mess of your life, this painful reality you find yourself in. Bring it to me. My friends, I hope you hear Jesus saying that. Because I think that for a lot of us, we think that we have to to be, in a sense, all together. We have to clean ourselves up. We We have to put on a brave, strong face. And we don't like the messiness of our lives to shine forth. If you've been to Mercy Hill Church before and you were there early enough to see the pre loop that we have showing on the screen, you would see this quote by Anne Lamott. She's a writer and she said, it's okay to realize you are crazy and very damaged. All the best people are. And I love that quote because I think it kind of pierces through what we try to do, which is to hide our craziness and how damaged we are. But she says, look, all the best people are. In fact, that's all the people are crazy and very damaged. And, 
And we need to hear that because I think sometimes we are very acutely aware of how broken our lives are, of how shattered we feel, of the pain and suffering we experience in this, in this broken reality that we live in and the disappointment that we find in ourselves. And, and we think that God is echoing that same disappointment from us. And it actually keeps us from, from going to God. And we think it, it keeps him from coming to us. And nothing can be further from the truth. My friends, while you may have a struggling faith, while it may be anything but what you want it to be, while it may be weak and full of, of unbelief as well, nevertheless, know that God moves toward you in the brokenness of who you are, and he comes with healing in his hands. My friends, while we still have questions about our, our lived experience in this shattered reality, we also have something else. We have an understanding that God doesn't stay distant, but that he comes close to us. And I've shared this quote with you before. Christianity is the only religion whose God bears the scars of evil. We know that even though we can't explain everything that's going on in our own lives or the brokenness of the reality that we feel, we know that God has moved toward us so much so that he was willing to take on the evil of the world in himself, in the person of Jesus. And so he knows what it's like to live this shattered reality. And he nevertheless moves toward us so much so that he went to the cross for folks like you and me. So here's the third massive implication. And we got to see this to understand this miracle of Jesus in light of his life and mission. What Jesus did here in miniature, that is in healing this man's son, he will do again for the whole cosmos. That's why we're meant to, to see this. When we read the scriptures, anytime, my friends, you see a miracle of Jesus, see in that small picture what God intends to do on a massive cosmic scale at the renewal of all things. The scholar N.T. Wright helps us out by saying that Jesus was not simply pointing to God's kingdom some way off in the future. He was causing it to appear before their eyes. You see, in Jesus, we get a picture of what it looks like when God's kingdom comes in its glory. It heals shattered lives. It brings wholeness. It brings the kind of reality that we want to live in. And yes, it is coming. But when we look at this miracle of Jesus, we're meant to see on a small miniature scale what he intends to do at large for the entire cosmos at his return. That's why the Apostle Paul would put it like this in his, his magnum opus of the book of Romans. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy. I'm sorry, <laughs> I got a different translation going in my head here. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Paul is saying, look, this is a present suffering. This is a broken reality that we inhabit. But this can't even compare with the coming glory that's going to be revealed. Look, even creation itself is waiting for that day when the children of God will at last be revealed. He goes on to saying, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What he's saying here is, look, this 
reality that we're living in. It might be nice to visit, but we don't really want to be in. It's filled with pain and brokenness. This is a creation subjected to frustration. It's been subjected to the selfishness of humanity. And it will one day be liberated. That's why Paul goes on to say, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. We wait for it with patience. My friends, at the time as in the scriptures began this morning, I ask you, how do you hope in the midst of this broken, shattered reality that we all experience? And the answer is, we hope in Jesus, who will not only liberate people from malevolent influences, but he will heal this entire creation. That's what we long for. That's what we hope for. And we wait for it with a stubborn patience. So when we read the Gospels and we see a miracle like Jesus, I'm sorry, (laughs) Jesus is a miracle, but we see a miracle like this one done by Jesus, there should be something in us that goes, Lord, do it again. But this time for the entire world. The reality that you and I long for is a reality that is not shattered by evil, that's not affected by brokenness, that is everything that you and I want. There's a classic hymn. It's actually written by John Newton, the same guy who gave us amazing grace in a number of other hymns. And this one is called Begone and Believe. And this is how the song and the poem opens up. Begone and believe, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. That's how it begins, and this is kind of how it, it ends. This is the note where he goes with it. Since all that I meet will work for my good, the bitter is sweet, the medicine food, though painful at present, will cease before long. And then, oh, how glorious, the conqueror's song. And then, oh, how glorious, the conqueror's song. What John Newton is is hanging on to here is the promise of that day to come. When all evil will be banished, everything that shatters will will be done away with, and healing will be here. Be gone and believe. Trust in that. And so, my friends, at the renewal of all things, the new heavens and new earth will be the kind of reality you wouldn't simply want to visit, but the place where you'd want to live. And so, my friends, may the Lord sustain you. The Savior is near, and for your relief, he will surely appear. Though there's pain in the present, it will cease before long. And then, oh, how glorious, the conqueror's song.